Welcome to the Maine Science Podcast. I'm Kate Dickerson. Today's episode is with Raphael Grossman, a surgeon who focuses on the convergence of technology and healthcare. That description barely does justice to Raphael's work, and our conversation was the first one I've had in a long time that made me think of science fiction throughout. Raphael is clearly determined to have a better healthcare future for all, and his argument and advocacy for technology playing a key role is both passionate and hard to counter. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Welcome to the Main Science Podcast. I know you're a trauma surgeon, um, but I'm going to let you give us a background on how on earth Maine was lucky enough to get you, because I know that you, like me, were not born here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, thank you, uh, Kate, for, for inviting me. Uh, yes, I am a surgeon. I'm originally from Venezuela, so I'm an immigrant. And uh, we came here uh, almost 17 years ago, uh, out of uh, all places. Uh, we were back in Venezuela after uh, our training, uh, my training in surgery and uh, Audrey's training in, uh, in uh, communications uh, in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And then we went back to Venezuela for about three years. After having been in Michigan for uh, seven and a half years, we came back home to Venezuela and uh, uh, unfortunately couldn't uh, really see a future there uh, for many other reasons that are beyond the scope of the podcast, uh, this one. But um, we started looking and we wanted to uh, find a place to settle the family and we concentrated in New England, which is an area that we were very uh, familiar with in a way and, and uh, liked that very much. So we started looking and uh, of all places in New England, uh, found uh, the hospital in Maine that uh, seemed to have the best potential for me to develop professionally and uh, uh, the area uh, that uh, was uh, an area that looked like it was really a good place to raise a family, you know, for, for many reasons that anyone who, who is from Maine understands, you know, the the, the outdoors, uh, the fact that it's a little bit out of the, the beaten path in a way with with many less of the bad things that you find in, in, in the big cities and still with some of the of the good features that you find in big cities. And and uh, um, anyways, we settled in here and uh, we um, have been here for almost 17 years and uh, so far um, so good, I guess. Uh, the, the kids uh, grew up uh, here and uh, they kind of have the main art feeling, I think, and uh, they're all, all all out to college right now. So it's been a good good time. You're a trauma surgeon. How quickly did you realize that that's what you wanted to do, both for medicine and for surgery? Yeah, well, I I wanted to uh, to be a surgeon for sure very early on in my in my life. Uh, you know, after sort of after high school, right? Uh, I went to med school. I, I decided to go to med school when I was in high school, pretty pretty early. And then, uh, so uh, med school is about seven years in Venezuela. And uh, the second half, I think I, I decided to be a surgeon. Before that, I wanted to, you know, I like uh, uh, I guess the the, the cliche uh, that you hear from people uh, why you went to medicine, you know, to help people. And I, I kind of like working with people and helping people, but I also like uh, sort of. Uh, quick fixes in a way, you know, in the good sense of the, of the phrase, you know, I couldn't be an oncologist, you know, uh, giving you a drug for 
months to see if it works. Uh, the fact that I could uh, do something and uh, uh, change the outcome of, of someone's uh, health or, or life uh, quickly, you know, by doing surgery or, or fixing you after trauma or, you know, stopping bleeding or, or whatnot. That was very attractive to me. So I, I, I went from, from emergency medicine to, to uh, pediatric surgery, to uh, doing internal medicine and surgery, to uh, doing a surgery, which is what I really enjoyed the most though. And I couldn't see myself doing anything else. Uh, if I had to do it all over again, I think I'd do it exactly the same way. I do surgery, you know, general surgery, but uh, also uh, what I've uh, specialized in over the last 17 years, uh, which is what I do here in Maine, uh, along with my, my, my group of partners, it's a do trauma surgery. We take care of any trauma that comes to the hospital and almost any emergency surgery that comes to the hospital, as well as taking care of patients in the regular floor, but also in the ICU. You know, the, the sickest patients, uh, we, we kind of keep them alive and keep them uh, in good shape. <laughs> So that's a huge range, general surgery, trauma surgery, and ICU. How hard is it, I guess, to switch hats? Yeah, well, you know, we, we kind of are trained to, to take care of the patients uh, from, the, from the, the healthiest ones to the sickest ones. And, uh, you know, it's really not changing hats that much. It's just a one very weird looking hat, I guess, that has uh, all sorts of uh, features to it. You know, we, uh, two thirds of what we do is uh, emergency and trauma. And uh, uh, the other third is, is elective surgery. So you see patients in clinic and you operate a hernia or someone with a polyp in the bowel or, or, or some other not emergent problem. But uh, then, you know, a lot of our patients who came, uh, who come for, for trauma or for an emergency are very sick and they end up in the ICU. So we actually, the same team of doctors, we take care of that patient. We, we might ask for expertise, you know, from a, you know, someone with a very defined cardiac issue or renal issue or pulmonary issue. We might get the help of our colleagues uh, to help us the same way as we help them with surgical issues, you know, when they need but uh, it's primarily uh, our, our patient, and, and we manage that patient until they get out of the hospital. You know, it's uh, in one way or the other. So it, it's fun. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's a wide range, but at the same time, it's really um, interesting because we, it's sort of hard to get bored. You know, you, you do, some days you do calm, elective, you know, paced, uh, predictable surgery, if there's anything that can be predictable in surgery. But other days, they're just crazy. You're trying to, you're in a war mode and you're trying to, you know, deal with two people dying in front of you. One of the things that I know you for, because you've presented at the festival, um, both to our field trip kids, but also at Five Minute Genius, is using technology in surgery. I know you were the first surgeon who did Google Glass. So I would like you to explain that experience, but then also why, why dive into technology for surgery? And maybe actually I should backtrack and you can explain exactly what that means because I, I have a feeling that, well, people my age might assume if surgery is like what we used to see on MASH, right? A million years ago, which I'm not sure it looks like that anymore. So if you could go a little bit into the technology part, the Google Glass, I'm just gonna sit back and listen. Well, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm sort of a geek, right? I, I love technology. I love gadgets. I, I, I always think I was a kid. I was doing electronics and, you know, setting up alarms and interfering with the TV signal. And so, so uh, uh, you know, grow, growing up in these very interesting times, right, that, that, that we did, uh, where, where we went from, you know, maybe black and white TV to, you know, holographic TVs now, <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. And uh, so uh, in medicine, everything we do in medicine has really uh, 
change, I would say. Almost everything we do in medicine uh, has a, the touch of technology. And I always talk about technology as a, you know, technology is sort of this abstract, uh, uh, you know, it could be from, from shaping a rock uh, to sending a rover to Mars, right? That's all technology. It's just about how we use the technology. And, uh, and uh, for me, it's, it's about the smart use of the technology to uh, enhance and augment how we do healthcare, how we do medicine, and also how we teach the next generation of uh, care providers, right? So uh, I have always been passionate about technology, but it was about 10, 11 years ago when I, I really got a, a really involved with the, the, the newest back then a, a technology devices, you know, like the smartphones and, and uh, you know, FaceTime cameras and video cameras. We, we uh, one thing in Maine that we used to do a lot is telehealth, right? I'm talking before the pandemic. We did a lot of telehealth for many years. And then when I came here, I was sort of one of the instrumental, you know, I guess, players in setting up a telehealth network for trauma. And then when the iPhone 4 came out with FaceTime and we could do video on a little phone, we set up telehealth mobile teleconsultation network to do consultations by video and audio from smartphones to iPod touch devices or tablets. With a bunch of local hospitals in 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 in, in Maine, and uh, that caught a lot of attention. Uh, that was my first TED talk. I did a TEDx talk on that topic, and when I saw the power of the TEDx platform, you know, to be able to communicate a, an idea to thousands and thousands of people and keep it ongoing, I I, I really thought, you know, it's really like a responsibility. I, I love doing it, but it's a responsibility from clinical engaged people like me, full-time surgeon, it's a responsibility to tell the story so that we accelerate that positive change by the use of, 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 uh, of the use of technology in order to improve what we do in, in healthcare. And accelerating that change is important because uh, healthcare is really, I think is pretty frustrating. It's, it's in a pretty bad shape compared to what it should be in the 21st century. So after that, I started getting into different platforms, including exponential medicine. And I went on to meet the really, really cool technologies. One of them was Google Glass. And then I did the first operation with Google Glass ever done live. And that caught a lot of interest. And then I was getting calls from people all over the world to ask me uh, about the experience and my, my thought about it and the innovation behind it. And that just kept me going and growing and growing as a, as a snowball in regards to the use of technology to enhance medicine. And uh, nowadays, you know, several years later, I've become a little bit of a sort of an influencer of sorts or, or a, you know, I'm a keynote speaker. I go all over the world, or used to go all over the world uh, to talk about how, you know, different mindset can accelerate change. And, and from technologies that are available already, you can really make use of those technologies in, in different ways, just with a little twist of approach in order to maybe save a life or, you know, improve care, improve outcomes. So when you set up the telehealth program for Maine, did you notice right away, a, and I don't mean instantaneously, but over the span of a month or a couple of months or a year, a change in in how people recovered either from surgery or their overall health? I mean, did that make a big difference? Well, initially we, we used it only for uh, for acute consultations, right? We were just doing it for, a, a, let's say, a physician up in, you know, Holton, you know, wanted to ask our opinion about a trauma patient who was there in their ER. And uh, with their limited expertise, they wanted to have the expertise of a, of a trauma surgeon in Bangor. 
So rather than talking over the phone, we would talk uh, by video and we would uh, see the face of the surgeon, uh, of the ED physician or provider. We would maybe see the patient and uh, talk about, you know, talk with the patient or get more, you know, it's about getting more clues uh, in order for uh, someone to really make a better decision, right? A better diagnosis. So uh, we never used it uh, after the fact. We never, and it was because, you know, the, Telemedicine is 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 a it's a it's a difficult uh, topic that that's really a. To me, you know, I've always been passionate about the possibility of communicating better, right? And we have the tools to communicate in excellent ways these days, and we've had them for. 10 years or so. And uh, telemedicine had been struggling for decades, right? And it took a week for COVID-19 to just flip the switch and boom, now everyone is doing telemedicine. Everything we had been telling or that ADA had been telling uh, to Eastern Maine Health, for example, about telemedicine and, you know, talking about it, preaching about it, evangelizing about it. And not just Eastern Maine, but many other venues people always see the, the sort of the difficult side of things, you know, the, oh, the privacy, the reimbursement, the regulatory ch- changes, the, the obstacles. And then suddenly all of that evaporated right overnight just because of COVID-19. So really necessity it, it made us, uh, uh, you know, people talk about necessity being the mother of invention. In this case, it was like desperation being the mother of invention because there was no other way to connect with patients, right? You couldn't bring them to the office. So how, what are you going to do? Are you going to close the hospital and the clinic or are you going to see patients by like we are doing right now, you know, in video and on audio. So it, it, sometimes it takes a, a major event to, to shift the gears, but many times uh, the shift comes from using technologies or, or, or platforms that were already available for, for a long time before the, the cataclysmic event happened. So uh, uh, that, that's kind of the, the, the summary of it. Uh, so we never did a, a prospective study uh, for patients who uh, were follow-ups or that, that stuff is coming out now. You know, we have seen now, you know, or, or we're getting all this data from you know, millions and millions of telehealth visits that are being done all over the world. And uh, that data, I think, is going to be positive because, you know, to, to me, it's just intuitive. I was just talking to someone today in a, in a different a meeting. You know, it's good to have validation for new therapies or new devices. But, you know, sometimes, you know, if, if you ask me, I'm going to give you a, a flip phone, a cell phone or a smartphone, and uh, you can ask me, well, you know, what's the, why? I mean, do you have any data that supports that the smartphone is better than the flip phone? Well, I'm pretty sure there's some studies out there, but, you know, it's pretty obvious that a smartphone is a better tool to communicate or to, in general, you know, to connect than a flip phone is, you know, for, for many reasons that for us are intuitive and obvious. So the same thing happens with telemedicine. And I think the wrong thing is that a lot of the studies out there that uh, deal with telemedicine and that sometimes don't give, you know, a, a flying colors and, and, and great reviews a, are approached in, a, in the wrong way. To, to me, telemedicine is not a different than medicine. You know, it's not telemedicine. It's just medicine. It's just health. It's not telehealth. So I could send you a note by mail reminding you of your appointment or giving you the biopsy results, or I could send you a text or a chatbot can send you a text, or I can call you by phone on a landline, or I can have a video call with you and tell you. So it's not a substitute. It's another way, another tool to communicate. And it never excludes other ways of communicating. If I'm going to operate on your thyroid and you have a lump and you live 150 miles away and I need to, you know, feel the lump, well, I don't need to bring you to the office to feel the lump and and to talk to you about thyroid cancer. and, And then, you know, a month later, you know, come back before surgery and have another chat. We can do a lot of that stuff 
by remote connectivity, by video and audio. It was very good. These days, you know, the, the latency is very, very imperceptible. The image quality is great. You know, we can communicate really, really well, even though you're not in front of me physically. And it is uh, accepted that about 80% of uh, office visits and medical doctor's visits do not require physical contact. And I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. I'm very much old school about touching the patients and, you know, embracing and having empathy and eye-to-eye connectivity. Uh, that, that is really my, my passion. But at the same time, I think technology can enhance that because why bring that patient 150 miles one way to see you a couple of times before surgery when you can just have them come for the surgery only and then, you know, uh, avoid all the lack, uh, the, the, the wasted resources and frustrations and time and money involved in, in all those you know, visits that we see, especially in Maine, you know, in the middle of a storm for a 10 minute visit, you know, that, that is not justified with the technology that we have today. It sounds like you believe, number one, that this additional communication method is going to stick around no matter what. Number two, there's a bunch more that we can do without actually having to be in the same room and it really? will only get better. You know, I follow you on Twitter um, and I've been fascinated with a lot of the wearable tech that you've been talking about. And I don't mean for surgeons, I mean for, you know, like the patient like me. So if you could talk a little bit about whether you think this will stick around and then just some of the innovative stuff that you are excited about right now. You know, there's so many tools out there that are barely touching the the, the surface. You know, it's, it's, it's the tip of the iceberg, really. I really think that in the next three to five years, we're going to see even more so uh, tools that are going to enable better exchange of data. You know, in the case of in any human endeavor, you know, but especially in healthcare, you know, a wearables, a ingestibles, you know, soles, you know, shoe soles, undersoles, you know, rings or watches or, or you know, patches or, you know, continuously gathering data from patients, not just to, to treat patients, but, you know, more importantly, to prevent getting sick. And when you put all that together, then at the end, you know, the outcome is, is going to be better. But uh, all these uh, different tools, uh, you know, wearables are, are, are becoming smaller and smaller and uh, the data transmission is better and better. If you think about 5G and how eventually you know, 5G, you know, it's going to be like 4G and we're not going to think about it, but the latency is imperceptible. The uh, amount of data, the, broad, the spectrum, the, the bandwidth of the frequency is such that you can transmit you know, from your phone, tremendous amounts of, of data. And, uh, you know, when that gets everywhere, uh, the connectivity, the communication enabling is going to be just uh, fantastic, not just to make calls or send texts or a little picture, but to do a real-time video call, you know, to the point where back last year in China, surgeons did an operation, you know, robotic operation connected by cell tower 5G connectivity on a patient, you know, all by cell connectivity, cellular connectivity, 5G. So that's last year. So imagine, imagine now. So it's, it's, uh, so the possibilities are endless. And if we add, you know, the advances that are being made in artificial intelligent algorithms and machine learning, right? Robotics, a natural language processing, all those things which are part of artificial intelligence. Well, they've been around us in, in, in background, right? For, for a long time, but now we're seeing more and more because there's more chat about that. But, but but right now, it's getting to the point where it's becoming almost, almost scary, you know, to to the the, the amount of uh, decision-making power that some of the systems uh, have. 
better set, you know, the, the, the amount of information that we can get from the systems in order to make better decisions as humans. And, uh, you know, I'm always passionate about artificial intelligence. I, I've done, you know, several courses and certificates and you know, MIT and whatnot. But, you know, it, it, there's a lot of scare about uh, AI, right? But but to me, you know, it, it's really about the technology. How do you, it's about the smart use of the technology. You can use it for good or for bad. And uh, specifically with AI, I, it, it's been proven that AI on its own is, is not as good as AI plus the human. And uh, when we put that human and the AI together, I think the possibilities are, are endless, especially in, in medicine. So uh, uh, that, that is really, really exciting. You know, robotic surgery, uh, robotic assisted surgery is also becoming pretty, pretty important these days. And, you know, for the last almost decade or so, 15 years or so, uh, there's been kind of a domination of the field of robotic surgery by, by basically one big, one big company. Right now, that is really becoming more diversified, you know, companies from, from the UK, from China, from Germany, uh, even in the U.S. So there's going to be more competition and there's going to be more diversity in the offers for robotic surgery. Uh, and along with that, you know, the possibility to interact with data, you know, we interact with data basically still on flat screens, which makes no sense when we have all these incredible technologies for, for virtual reality and augmented reality or, or mixed reality, you know, what we call XR, all these immersive technologies, the, the way we communicate and we connect using these XR immersive technologies is going to radically change. And we have seen already, especially during the pandemic, when people had to be connected remotely to work, to educate themselves, you know, in school, or to even train or simulation for training for work. And the devices are just accelerated away, becoming better and better. And, and uh, it, it's just insane that, that you can just have a meeting with a bunch of, you know, volumetric, photovolumetric renderings of real people in your living room, and they're all you know, managing the digital data in 3D and you're all talking about the same piece of, you know, could be a, the heart or could be a, a, the 3D rendering of an image on a, on a magnetic resonance or could be a, an engine or could be anything. You can collaborate remotely almost as if you were present. And uh, that stuff is, again, just barely touching the, the, the surface. And, uh, and uh, when it really explodes, and it will explode within the next three to five years, it's just going to be uh, just phenomenal. So do you think a place that has such rural areas like Maine is at a disadvantage because, you know, cell reception can be spotty in some parts of the state and we don't have, uh, you know, we don't have statewide broadband access necessarily. How do we how do we fix that and not lose out on some of these up and coming advances that we've got? No, absolutely. Well, I think that in one one. Uh, in one uh, aspect, you know, it's, it's really a big opportunity, right? Because uh, we, we don't live in a big city, so we don't have, you know, uh, coffee shops all over the place with, with, with 5G connectivity or, or less, much less. But uh, so it is an opportunity to, you know, to, to, to have these technologies really uh, connect us better and, and help us communicate better to enhance every aspect of human life including healthcare and education. But, uh, you know, we've talked about that for, for a long time. Uh, you know, years ago, I remember, you know, the, the three-ring binder project that was going to bring, you know, high-speed fiber optic uh, connectivity to, to major help hubs in the state. And, you know, if you think about that, that is, that is amazing. You know, if we, we had that. Uh, now, every hospital in Maine, uh, well, not, I, I don't, I can't say every hospital in Maine, but many of the hospitals in Maine have very good, 
internet connectivity one way or, or another. I, I'm not sure what they use. Maybe it's a high fiber, a high speed fiber, or maybe it's a, it's just regular cable. But uh, in any case, I think that it's important to broaden the uh, availability of Wi-Fi connectivity, or internet connectivity. Otherwise, none of this is possible. And everything is, you know, under the the present that 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 you have to have connectivity. Otherwise, you know, you can have whatever tool and you know, if you don't have electricity or if you don't have, because electricity is even a real thing, or, or if you don't have a, a connectivity, if you can, if you are in, a, in one of the many little islands in Maine and, and you get injured and you go to the little health clinic, if they don't have connectivity, then that's it. And it might be electricity, even though we're in a storm, or it could be Wi-Fi, it could be satellite connectivity. You know, there's a lot of a progress out there these days, though, trying to expand internet connectivity all over the world. I mean, if we talk about uh, Starlink, the Elon Musk's project, you know, with can't keep track of how many satellites are there out there already, but but hundreds, I think, I think it's more than 100 now. And, uh, you know, the, the goal is to encircle Earth with a network of Wi-Fi available anywhere on Earth. You know, Google had similar projects. I think eventually it'll be you know, not an issue, but for a few years, I think it's still an issue. And places like Maine, you know, and we don't have it as bad as, as many other places, you know, in the world, but but uh, still, it, it's a real issue. Was, was Google Glass a turning point for you from the perspective of this is truly transformative and how we do medicine? Well, I mean, conceptually it was, for me it was, you know, when I did that surgery and it wasn't really a big deal. All I did was connect my students to me doing the surgery from my perspective, seeing what I was seeing from a distance instead of them being behind me trying to see what I was doing, right? So for them, it was a much better learning experience. For me, it was a much better teaching experience. And uh, and it was pretty simple, out-of-the-box experience. You know, we, we, we made sure that... Um, we asked the patient and the family and the team about, uh, you know, permissions and everyone agreed and we just did it in a secure a, a line of communication to keep the patient's privacy, which is very, very much an important issue, right? But unfortunately, it didn't take locally as much as I would have wished, uh, you know, to tell you the truth, I, I was even reprimanded, you know, while I was getting calls from China, Italy, Argentina to tell them about the surgery. And I think that small act uh, uh, that I did. A friend of mine, uh, I wrote a little post and a friend of mine from Forbes uh, wanted to write a post and he did a few hours later and after less than 24 hours, he had like thousands and thousands and thousands of, of hits on his post from Forbes, uh, in Forbes. So uh, it went all over the world. And to, to me, it was uh, almost uh, the first step in how to use a augmented reality or mixed reality in, in healthcare, in surgery. I mean, you see now, a, I mean, a, a year after that, you know, someone else did it with, with thousands of students. You know, a few months after that, someone else did it. I've, you know, every every month we have some development. Uh, and I think it woke up almost a, a monster, you know, to, okay, why are we not using these tools created for play and for listening to concerts and looking at, you know, the videos or, or playing music? Why are we not using these tools to potentially save someone's lives or improve someone's uh, ability or someone's uh, learning of, of doing surgery or whatnot. And uh, so Google Glass is still a viable product. There are a lot of, even in healthcare companies that are using Google Glass in healthcare, it's kind of under the radar and, and it's, a, it's a design that, that I think was, was brilliant. 
maybe their marketing campaign or whatever didn't make him as successful as they would expect it. But, but it was almost, the, I call it the Model T of you know, uh, augmented reality glasses. Now we have all these head-mounted displaces from Magic Leap to uh, HoloLens and, and many others that, that are bringing, I mean, exponentially better than Google Glass, right? But not exclusive uh, of Google Glass. I mean, Google Glass still has a very, a very real role. I mean, we use Google Glass. You know, I kept telling the hospital for almost three years to uh, engage with a company that was uh, that had Google Glass connected with a remote human scribe so that the human scribe could be. And, and it took almost three years for me to convince the hospital. It was like an uphill battle to try to convince the hospital to do it. And then finally they agreed to do it. And then, and then every, everyone loved it. And we could have been the first hospital in the world doing that. But no, we were like the 26th hospital in the U.S. or something doing that. So sometimes it takes a little bit of a, a, you know guts to jump in in the innovation wagon and you know be the first. And as long as everything is safe and, and you think that you're meeting all the requirements, then just go for it because uh, it can help your your industry, but also it can help patients. It can make the experience better for the patients, for the physicians. So uh, I think it didn't change it really I've had the same vision for head-mounted display and better ways of communicating uh, since I used Google Glass. But unfortunately, in real life, in practice, it barely changed my practice because of where I work at all, unfortunately. I would go to Dubai or other places or other countries, you know, to set up programs. And at home, I couldn't do any of that. When you said the Google Glass and it allowed you to have students, it reminded me of, you know, those medieval surgical theaters that you know, they're built so that people can be at the top and look down. And it sounds like it's almost a straight line from how medicine used to be taught. We forgot about it. And now we're back at, at it with the, with the idea. So the head mounted, you said it's got AR and mixed reality. How do those work? I'm just going to throw an example and you can tell me if it's totally off base. Let's say you're doing some type of surgery with the heart and you have one of those things on, would it show you all the places around the heart that you have to watch out for, or would it be that that person's heart projected on there? Like, how would that physically work? Yeah, well, none of these devices yet are being used in in clinical, you know, patients. So in patients okay. right now, and you, there's a lot of noise out there, and oh, the Hololens was used in surgery and whatnot. We're not. There's like three phases, you know. I always talk about education, right? Uh, about diagnostics. Mm-hmm. And in education and diagnostics, we are like blowing it. It is amazing stuff that you can do for education and diagnostics. Uh, you can look at an X-ray rather than on a flat screen, or even on a flat. Even if you have a 3D rendering of the image on the X-ray, imagine your your lungs, for example, or, or a bone or something. You could do a 3D rendering of that on a two screen, on a 2D screen. So that is nearly as good as being able to see that image in 3D projected in front of you in the space, and you can go around that image and basically play with it and go inside the image and look at it at different uh, planes, right? So that is unbelievable. Now, in therapy, in actual use, we're barely, you know, scraping the surface still. There's a company called Brain Lab, which is a monster of company, you know, very successful, phenomenal, German-based. It's basically surgical navigation, imaging navigation, and they've been around for years and any hospital that does any advanced neurosurgical or orthopedic procedures have a brain lab platform on their hospital. They're every hospital in the world. So now they, and I've tried their 
newer platform about a year and a half, two years ago uh, with Magic Leap, which is a device that is for mixed reality that um, I'm one of the healthcare advisors for Magic Leap. And they uh, showed me what they had. And it's basically the ability to look at those images during a procedure to guide the surgery better. So they have, a, 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 they, they call it a mixed reality viewer that allows the surgeon to have a much better and uh, easier and more efficient viewing of images during surgery even. But uh, these are all uh, devices that are uh, uh, obviously not uh, uh, obstructive of the vision of the surgery, but you still, you don't want to be operating with one of those devices on unless you're doing something like you're placing a pin or you're, you're, so rather than be looking at the images on monitors, you know, on different areas of the room and you're having to turn yourself from the patient to look at the monitor, you could have the image right where you want it in front of you as you are in front of the patient and in a more ergonomic uh, uh, way, for example. They're using, uh, for example, the HoloLens in the cardiac uh, cath lab where they have multiple screens and they're doing things that they're looking at different screens, looking up or looking right or left, looking at different screens as they advance the wire or they inject the contrast dye. Uh, but with the HoloLens, you can have all those screens manage those screens and locations with gestures in front of you in the air. So without having to touch anything, which is great because you have to be sterile, right? So uh, the interaction with all the data, with all the imaging data, it, it's much uh, more efficient and more ergonomic. And at the end, it's just better for sure. But then from there you go to, you know, at some point, yes, you're going to be able to, let's say, inject a dye in the patient. And with these glasses, you'll be able to see the areas that you want to resect or the areas that you don't want to injure during surgery, right? We do that already with robotic surgery. We see on the robotic surgery screen on the console, we inject a dye and we see where the common bile duct is. So we don't injure the common bile duct, for example. So the same thing could happen in open surgery or in laparoscopic surgery with the surgeon wearing this type of glasses. And the glasses are now, again, you can see through them. So you have people in the military, you have people in different industries, you know, using these glasses as protective devices, but at the same time, they have the ability to project any digital image in front of them and manipulate those images. And even more so, they have a camera so they can connect to anyone remotely and that person remotely who might be an expert or a learner is seeing what you're seeing and learning. So, so sort of an exponential evolution from that Google Glass experience. Now you can have that through these glasses as well. You can have someone, oh, don't touch that. You know, don't injure that. Don't move, move right, move left. Or that person can bring their hands remotely in augmented reality in your visual field and guide you as if they were there, but they're not. They are a thousand miles away, you know? So the possibilities are really phenomenal. It is pretty extraordinary to think about how that could transform places where they don't have a big staff or they don't have experts. So do you have a, I don't even know if this is a fair question. Do you have a favorite or, or do you have something that you're really excited about that you hope you can kind of really use it and, and uh, promote in all the good ways and advocate for over the next couple of years? Well, it's hard to have a favorite, you know, when there's so many technologies out there, there's so, uh, there's so many uh, interesting things going on. Uh, right now, I think that uh, we're talking about wearables, for example. I got to say, you know, my, my favorite is a ring wearable that is called the Aura because it measures a lot of things, physiologic variables, uh, you know, without me even knowing, you know, and the battery is for, for days and days and days and even checks my temperature. So I've been involved in a few um, COVID-related studies where, you know, they try to look at the data 
and then predict whether someone can have COVID before they actually have symptoms of COVID. So that's pretty exciting. So for wearables, I think that the Aura Ring is really this finished device that I've had for a few years. And I think that they're pretty amazing. If we talk about watches, I think the Apple Watch has no competition. If we talk about headset, XR headsets, I have to say that I love features from Magic Leap, obviously, and from HoloLens. I think those are the really the two real players right now and uh, uh, to to use that for connecting and communicating better in the industry setting you know they're not consumer devices i think yet but uh, i think that uh, they're going to be primary players in any industry including healthcare uh, and education very soon uh, and uh, for many many years to go and then if we talk about sort of consumer uh, type uh, ar devices there's a device called the View6, a company called the View6. Uh, and the View6, uh, it's, uh, they have a number of glasses that are very, very becoming very accepted and common place in, in many industries, including healthcare. But one of their devices is just, a, it's called the Blade from, from View6, and it's just a set of glasses. And, uh, and uh, you can see in those glasses, just like in Google Glass, an image floating in front of you, and you can manipulate, you know, the the menu in there, the computer menu in there uh, by just uh, tapping or swiping on the side frame of the glass. And uh, it connects to the internet and it uh, you can uh, ask Google a question and you can have music played for you or you can, you know, uh, do pretty much anything you would do with a smartphone in general. They have different apps and you can navigate the app with voice or with... The, so that device, I think that there'll be a point where a lot of people is going to be using these devices in, in many places, you know, obviously different levels of socioeconomic development in different countries, but but in many developed countries, I think just like smartphones are out there, I think that eventually we'll get to the point where we're holding a device to look at something and it, it'd be kind of ridiculous, you know, when you can do it from a set of glasses or as the glasses get smaller, you know, uh, even contact lenses will be embedded with the capabilities of doing uh, XR or augmented reality. And then when we talk about VR, right, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, VR, they're, they're, you know, obviously the Quest, the Oculus Quest 2 is, is probably the best device out there, I would say, for, 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 for most things. But there are devices like Pico device that are more for the industry. But the stuff happening with these two devices, I mean, it's so much being produced in virtual reality right now, and it's so good, and you can manipulate everything with gestures. Some of them, you don't even need an internet connectivity, and, and you can do a telehealth visit, you know, with your provider, and you see the provider is seeing you know, how you are from a computer camera, they're seeing what you're doing and they are in the room digitally guiding you to, you know, do more than 30 degrees or, or less or, you know, guide a therapy remotely and get all these, uh, you know, uh, data points uh, from measuring what you're doing. So it's really unbelievable, the stuff that is happening out there. This is a totally random question. How heavy is that ring? Like, How oh, long did it take you to get used to it? It's it's super light. It's actually I, I almost like to, I would like it if it's heavier to tell you the truth because it almost feels like it feels like it's plastic, but but it's not. It's it's really a. a I don't wear any any rings or nothing. I like not to wear any of that stuff. The only you know, I wear watches and things just to because I'm always involved in different projects, checking on things and trying different things. But this ring is is really awesome because I don't have to worry about it. Every few 
you know, several days, I get a message to charge it and I charge it, you know, in a few minutes and then it's on again for, and it, it measures so many variables on my phone that I can keep track of them. You know, my, my pulse, my respirations, my, my temperature, especially, but also the sleep algorithm. I'm always fascinated with the sleep algorithms and devices that track your sleep and stuff. And I, not that I care much about, but I just, because I don't get that much sleep, maybe because of that work I do, I'm always fascinated by sleep. But uh, you can see how you're doing and what things you do that might prevent you from sleeping well. And and they also the the interesting things is that they are also connected with AI algorithms, right, within their the platform. And the platform, the algorithm tells you, you know, don't exercise this late. You know, your your basal, uh, uh, you know, uh, heart rate in the middle of the night was a little elevated. You know, were you drinking alcohol or were you, you know, maybe you shouldn't drink or maybe uh, or the temperature thing where you, you we found that people, you know, with and temperature progressively, you can pre-clinically predict maybe if someone has a disease like COVID-19, for example. All those studies are are happening and, and are really, really uh, interesting. Uh, you know, people, like, for example, uh, maybe women uh, uh, being able to predict when they're fertile, you know, on their cycle because of the temperature changes that are, there are temperature changes that are better than a thermometer because you're not checking in one time a core temperature, you're checking skin temperature over a long time. So the algorithm predicts and tells you more accurately what the temperature might be. So it's really, really uh, exciting. Are there any final pieces with the technology, medicine, surgeon connection that you'd like to make sure that we know about? You know, everything is about improving how we connect and communicate. Everything we, you know, could be data, could be, you know, personal communication. I I think that uh, if COVID-19 has shown us something is uh, that uh, remote connectivity is is, is a must, Uh, you know, especially nowadays, I mean, you, you you can't really progress or continue without remote connectivity, right? And uh, uh, the platforms out there that are being uh, developed for remote connectivity are, are just insane. Uh, some of these platforms involve uh, either digitally created avatars in, vir- in virtual reality where you're completely immersed in a digital room and you have a, you have a rendering of your lab and you have students avatars of your students, you know, personalized avatars, and they're all interacting with each other. And, and you give them a class and you're looking at different instruments. And, and then uh, some of these devices have uh, ways of uh, having haptics where you can, if you train doing a surgical procedure, for example, you can grab a digital drill and you can feel with these gloves, the actual tissue drilling different tex- uh, densities of tissue. So all that stuff, I think is, is very interesting. You know, the haptics of virtual reality. There are companies that are doing photo volumetric renderings of people. So I can have your digital picture, 3D, not an avatar, but a Kate, you know, a, a hologram of Kate in real time, talking to me in real time. And uh, there are companies doing holographic, almost teleportation, which are just, uh, there's one company that I've a uh, little involved with, the name is Portal, P-O-R-T-L. And Portal is based in California and you know, they can have, I mean, you step on this place and boom, you're, you're beamed up in this cube or this portal <laughs> and very high grade definition, you know, in real time, you know, you could be 3000 miles away or three meters away. So uh, for entertainment, they're used, they have used it for videos of people playing music and, you know, have a musician uh, in real life and a musician who's a hologram. But imagine that stuff for medicine. Imagine someone checking you with you at home and instead of a phone call, you have a nurse or a doctor, you know, talking to you, you know, and discussing your how you're feeling. Imagine the feeling of that better 
empathy between the holographic image rather than a voice or a text and the other human, the patient. So I think that's really important. That's why I always say that technology is improving the way, you know, it's making medicine more humane because you are using the technology the right way. So you're making the interaction more empathetic by using the technology in a smart way. And even more so, you know, there are companies like uh, Unique, which is a New Zealand company and the Digital Human Project, where they have this digitally created avatar that looks like a human person's video and uh, it's almost in, in, in 3D, but you can see the, the drops of sweat on this avatar. It, it's just amazing, but not that only, but it's uh, actually uh, powered by artificial intelligent algorithm. So you could have a, imagine a chat bot, right? A, that you get text from or a phone call, but you can have this avatar talk to you and you ask questions and the chatbot gives you answers that are appropriate based on what you're asking. And the database is so huge that the questions are just like from a human. So, you know, we know that the supply of healthcare providers, for example, is, you know, minuscule compared to the demand worldwide. We know that 5 billion people in the world, you know, two thirds of the population don't have access to safe surgery or, or, or surgical care, safe or affordable care. The same thing in many other specialties, right? So if we can have the healthcare providers augmented and enhanced and multiplied by a bunch of smart avatars that can maybe play the role of, of the pre-visit or the triage you, you know, to see whether you need to go to the hospital or not. And uh, in a way, you know, bring that gap to be a little bit shorter or, or smaller. I think that that'd be a great, a great uh, advancement in the way we, we communicate and we, we use the, the resources. I've seen uh, examples of this avatar, even this morning when I connected to this, uh, this person in, in Australia. And, uh, you know, it, it's amazing. You talk to this avatar and this avatar, you can tell that it's not a human, but barely. But the important thing is that the answers are, you know, how are you feeling? You have a headache. Are you the headache? Well, have you had the headache for a while? Is it the right side? Is it the left side? You know, you think, have you been drinking or do you fall? Or all these questions that I would ask, but it's an avatar. And based on that, the avatar, well, I think that you better, you know, not worry about it or you should drink a lot of water or you should go to the doctor right away. So that, that is really important. And uh, those are uh, probably the, the latest news that I have from the technology front. <laughs> it's interesting. It feels very much on the cusp of science fiction, yeah. uh, but in all the good ways, in all the really cool ways that I like science fiction. Absolutely. <laughs> Raphael, talking to you about your work always makes me pretty excited because you're so passionate about it. And I think the part I love the most is how much you talk about education and reaching people who don't have access to all of this. I, I think it's really valuable and really easy to forget that all these tools can be used in all those ways. So I am grateful that you keep reminding us of that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. The Maine Science Podcast has received support from the Maine Technology Institute and is recorded at Discovery Studios at the Maine Discovery Museum in Bangor, Maine. The Maine Science Podcast is produced and edited by me, Kate Dickerson. I received production support from Miranda Bouchard. The Discover Maine theme was composed and performed by Nick Parker.